Uh, do you hear there's a big game happening today? Of Amer- Who, who's Super Bowl? Who's Super Bowl? Your Super Bowl? It's all about the Chiefs beating the Bears. Huh? That's, that's where it's at, huh? I think Kyle's a Chiefs fan. Wait, Kyle, did you just switch? Are you a Bears fan? Big Bears fan. Bear down. Bear down. Awesome. Well, good to see you guys. Really glad. Glad that you guys made it. It's a beautiful day. I love the fall um, because the leaves are changing colors and there's, you know, pumpkin spices everywhere. It's all about pumpkin spice. But good morning. A special welcome to you families who are here with us. Really glad. You know that you made it, you traveled, um, you're spending time with your, you know, your child or children, and uh, just what a joy it is to have you guys here with us. A brief introduction of myself. Uh, my name is Mike Clunky, like Alec said. Uh, my wife, Michelle, and I have mar- been married going on 26 years. We have three kids. Our daughter, Jillian, is 22. She's out of college. She works in business consulting in downtown Chicago. Um, our daughter Natalie is 19. She's a sophomore at the University of Illinois. And if you come to the fall retreat, she's a part of our uh, network church at U of I. And so you'll get a chance to see her and you will know who she is. I'll just put it that way. She is a big personality. Uh, and then we have a, a son named Luke um, sitting back there. He's a sophomore, or sorry, he's a junior at, um, in high school at Normal Community High School, right, Jake? Go Ironman, that's right. M-I-Z. Oh, wow, look at that, look at that. Go Ironman, all right. In, in 2001, my family moved um, to ISU to help start Cornerstone Church, and we've been here ever since. Uh, today, we have just a great team, uh, a staff team, and a team of volunteers you know, that, that, we, that we work with, and just really just excited um, yeah, just really excited to continue just another school year here with you all. I do see some friends who have graduated and moved on. You guys are here. I think you're going to be at my house for the Bears game. Excited to hang out with you guys. But let me briefly tell you um, where we've been and tell you where we are going this morning. So we began a series called The Big Picture and really walking through the, the, the grand narrative, the meta narrative, the story that's laid out in scriptures. And that story just talks about how we were created by God to be in a dependent love relationship with Him. One where you are fully known, you are truly loved, and you are completely free. You were created to feel the goodness of the joy that God brings because of who He is, His goodness in His life and the goodness of His glory. And this joy in our role in a relationship, dependent relationship with God, is it, that's called worship. It is what we were created to do. Worship is a little bit like what lovers do when they express delight to each other, or what someone feels when you see an ocean sunset, or what we do when we tell others about that great movie that we saw, or the, that great book that we read, or that beautiful piece of artwork that we experienced. And this is the goodness of the glory of God. And we are invited, as C.S. Lewis describes, to to run up the sunbeams to the sun, the source of all of our delight. It comes from God and it is found in Him. But this perfect state of knowing and being known has been completely undone. 
we ourselves have been unmade. This is our lived experience. The scriptures tell us that the source of pain and heartache is a word they describe as sin. Sin is a personal, deliberate break in our relationship with God. It is saying that I neither want Him, nor do I need Him, and I certainly won't worship Him. But what we find ourselves doing is we, we feel this break and this longing and this urging to, to kind of put, put back together what we believe is wrong in the world and in ourselves. We try to mend this cosmic break and fixing it, fixing it in our relationship with God by looking to things and sources on the outside. Like if I can get my act together, if I start making the right choices, if I start doing the right things and stop doing maybe other things, then maybe God will accept me, that God will love me, that God will receive me. And these seemingly good acts that we do of goodness, it, what it actually does is it, it puts God in your debt. God now owes you because of your apparent goodness. He owes you now love and mercy. That's not the way it is. Or sometimes in our broken state, we believe that we can never be good enough. I can never have it all together to be loved by God. Even though God looks at you as His crown of creation, He sees you and he knows that you created in wonder and beauty. You are a king or queen. And you have intrinsic value. You defame yourself or you demean yourself in self-loathing. You can't or are unwilling to accept that you actually are worthy of love. But... Because of God's great love for His creation, He made a way for us to be reconnected to Him in a trust relationship, just like it was back in the beginning. And since we were incapable of fixing the problem here on the inside, the sin that separates us from a holy God in the heart, the solution that God brought had to come from the outside. And God's love meant that God the Son would come and would take on flesh. And eventually in His flesh, He would take on all of our sin and its penalty. His name was Jesus, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. In Judaism, the, the heart, when it talks about the heart, the heart is the seat of our emotions. It is the place of our passions, of our thoughts, and our will. And in Jesus, God gives us the opportunity once again to live in this trust-based, joyful, worshipful relationship where we harness our lives to Him. This is part of what it means to be in Christ, united with Him in His life. He lived the life that we are supposed to live, united in His death. He died the death I should have died so that we could be reconciled and reconnected to God and be in right relationship with Him. This is the heart of what it means to be made new. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.17. This is what Kyle talked about last week. To be in Christ is everything. And this happens in a moment. The instant anyone 
acts on the offer of free grace, forgiveness, and freedom is given to you. The moment that you turn and you trust Jesus is the moment of being included in Christ. It is instantaneous and I believe permanent. And so coming to Christ, it positionally changes everything. I was not in Christ, and now I am in Christ. It means that if you have chosen to accept, you have chosen to accept the mercy and the lordship of Jesus. You were in spiritual darkness, now you are in spiritual light. You were spiritually dead, now you are spiritually alive. And this happens in a moment. You are forgiven, you are set free in an instant. That Jesus' death, instead of your own, um, is his obedience for you. Right? Your disobedience, now you get His righteousness. His righteousness now covers you instead of our unrighteousness. You are made totally, completely new. But we have to ask, what is it all for? What is the rest of the story? And that's what we're talking about today. Because we need to understand this, and, and hopefully you, know, you can really feel this. When God makes you new, He intends to make you whole. When God makes you new, He intends to make you whole. Specifically, we're going to see what wholeness looks like, when it begins, and where it all is headed. We're going to see how wholeness is healing that it has a starting point but begins again every single day. And that this life and everything in it is heading to a final complete restoration, complete perfection and rest. The Hebrew vision of this is called shalom. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just ask that you, you well, we know you are here, Lord. Would our hearts be present with you and open to you that we would hear a message about the love that you have for us, my life where it's at in the steps that you are calling me to take so that I can be made whole. So God, I thank you for my friends here. I know that you desire to do good to them. Would those who have ears hear the message that you have for them? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't feel whole. With almost 50 years on this planet, I still feel pretty broken. I react to things instead of being more thoughtful. I'm at times impatient with the people that I love. This past week, I asked Michelle if she would help me by pointing out times when she hears me complaining. For a long time, I've wrestled with just trusting God, that He will give me rest. With my coworkers, I struggle to communicate encouraging things to them, words of encouragement. They're in my head, though. <laughs> I think it. It just doesn't come out of my mouth. My mom died last October. This past month, I've spent some, I've spent some time grieving again. And we're planning a one-year memorial for her, and and it has just highlighted the, the brokenness and tension in my own family. The weaknesses that I know that my brothers have. My dad and him being able to communicate thoughtfully. The relationships around me, they're not whole. 
but neither am I. I don't feel like I work right at times. I struggle with having a critical spirit. I have deep childhood sadnesses that I wish would just evaporate. Now, I was bullied pretty intensely in middle school, physically beaten at times, emotionally just wrecked. I wish I could have died, but I did not have the courage to follow through with it. Early in my marriage, I would explode in anger, like really, really scary anger. And it took the intimacy of marriage and the help of counseling to reveal to me that anger is a secondary emotion, and mine was fueled by an intense sadness. About 20-some years ago, a counselor told us uh, that, told me, looked at me, and said, Michelle can't handle your anger. No one can handle your anger, but she can handle your sadness. And then he asked, what are you sad about? In an instant, the dam broke. I wept for what seemed like an eternity. I still weep over how my brokenness affected Michelle and my young kids. It still affects them. I'm not whole. I really want to be. The scriptures tell us the story of a woman who was not whole but wanted to be. This is found in Luke 7. It says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him, Jesus, to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. This woman goes unnamed by Luke. Some think that she was a prostitute. Some think that this interpretation is misogynistic. But you know what I think? I don't think she cares what we think. I think the only thing she cared about was this. She longed to be whole. The disciples cared, though. They chided Jesus because if he knew what kind of person was touching him, he would be reviled. He'd be utterly disgusted. But Jesus knew. And he let her touch him. He let her heart break in his presence. Because he knew that the law couldn't heal her. Trying harder couldn't heal her. Being good couldn't heal her. But he could. Jesus said to those in the room, Many are her sins that are forgiven, and this is why she loves much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. You see, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he came telling everybody that the kingdom of God has come. The the kingdom of God has arrived. So what are the qualities of the kingdom of God? Well, the writers in the gospel stories, they tell us that Jesus went into the city of Capernaum and he healed a man possessed by a demon. And then he immediately went to Peter's mother-in-law's house and she lay in bed with a fever and he touched her and she was healed. And then a chapter later, a, a leper came to him, kneeling, saying, make me clean, cleanse me, Jesus, make me whole. The writer Mark wanted us to know absolutely know what Jesus did next because it says that he reached out his hand and he touched the man 
and immediately he was healed. That evening, news spread. I, I have no idea what the picture of this looks like, but many people, so many people heard about what Jesus was doing and what the kingdom of God looks like that they brought all of their family members, all of their friends came to him seeking to be healed. The author John Eldridge says here, he says, this is what Christianity is supposed to do in a person, restore him as a human being. This is what it's supposed to do. You know, if Jesus walked in here declaring the kingdom of God, what would he bring? Wholeness and healing. Just ask an addict how he or she would feel to no longer be addicted. To walk out of here knowing that it's no longer a thing in your life. The person struggling with a sex addiction, to wake up tomorrow and just be free from it. How would it feel to have just a, a great relationship with food and exercise and diet? For the one consumed with pain from the past to one day be free from the thoughts that control you and consume you. What would it be like if, if you struggle with things it, that if, if Jesus walked in here and you knew that thing you struggled with, that tomorrow it would no longer be a struggle? Jesus came to make you whole. And when you read the Gospels, you begin to see something about Jesus that it's just compelling. It's just, it's compelling. What is it? It is His holiness. But don't misunderstand what we're talking about. Holiness is nothing more or less than His kindness and His goodness. It's this pure goodness that drew people to Jesus. And there was something so astonishing about Him that when people met Him, they themselves were compelled to be good too. The tax collector, Zacchaeus, you know, climbed, we, the wee little man climbed to the tree and saw Jesus. Jesus said, come on, you're going to be my guest here. After meeting Jesus, he says, Lord, half of what I, ha gave, half of what I have, most of it was probably stolen, but half of it I'm going to give away. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them four times what I defrauded them. Wholeness in your life looks like this. It's the holiness of Jesus in your life. But when most people think about holy people, they think about someone who maybe thinks that they're better than somebody else, or someone who's really just not in touch with the real world. But that is not the biblical picture of holiness. Holiness in the Bible is this, you being restored as a human being in all of your fullness. This is the vision of the Christian life. An encounter with the real Jesus that leaves you wanting more, wanting change. And if this is what wholeness looks like, then when does it begin? It begins the moment you let Him. The moment that you come irresistibly drawn to His goodness and His holiness and willingly commit your life to Him. One of my professors in seminary, he described it this way. Let me, let me illustrate um, this for you, when it begins. Michelle and I used to live next to this neighbor. It was a guy, gentleman, who we barely saw. His house over the eight years that we lived there, it literally began to slowly fall apart. Like first the siding started falling off and the fascia would come off like the gutters were hanging down. Trees grew up in front of this house. You could not tell there was a house there. His lawn was a prairie until people called the town and said, you need to mow it. So he hired a 
company to come mow it and like all the woodland creatures that hung out in the lawn were now in everybody else's yard. It was just a mess and every year it just got worse. What if I just picked up a hammer and a saw and just started working on that house without doing repairs without permission? If I just started working away and, you know, taking windows out and replacing those windows, I would probably have the police show up. And I'd say, officer, it just, I know it looks bad, but hold on a second. I know it looks bad, but I just thought I'd do a little bit here and a little bit there, you know, because my, you know, this is affecting my, my, my home value, my property. But the first question that he would ask me is, is this your property? Well, the truth is it's not mine that the house doesn't belong to me. And then he'd remind me that I'm on someone else's property. I, I have to cease the work. I, I can no longer do the work. The law is the law. The house is not mine. I can't get to work on it. I would have no right to bring restoration because I don't own it. Now, suppose I bought the house that's falling down. Suppose I bought it and I started working on it and I was restoring it and that same officer comes by. But this time I show him the deed to the house. I would have the right and the joy of restoring it. You see, wholeness in your life can only begin when you transfer ownership of your life to God. Until I do, he will not get to work. Until you do that, he will not get to work. He will honor your refusal, refusal to let him. But the transferring of my life, the ownership of my life to Jesus, it happens as an act of will to trust in Jesus as the one, he's the one who paid all of the debt that, that I owed his, my father. Now he owns my life and because now he owns my life and my life is hidden in him, it gives him permission to begin this restoration, this wholeness work in our lives. Jesus is intent on transforming everything in you and around you. He isn't content with just a, rubbing off a little surface dirt. He wants to transform you so that you shine radiant. And picture back the goodness of who God is. So you need to know this. Jesus is asking you today to trust him at a very profound level. You see, the heart of Jesus that we see in the Scripture, the heart of Jesus that I know is this is the heart of a good man. But he's also asking you to trust him with your soul. Because Jesus intends to make you whole when you are wholly his. He intends to make you whole when you are wholly his. And so trusting Jesus and relinquishing your life to Jesus, it happens the moment we give him the deed of our lives. But for some of us, there's something that holds us back it's rarely, when I talk to people, it's rarely lack of knowledge. We want to run our own lives our way. We don't believe that we are worthy of His love. Or we count the cost of holiness, of wholeness, and what it's going to take, and we just actually find out that we love sin more. We realize that if I come to Jesus, I'm going to have to deal with my cruddy attitude. I'll have to approach sexuality in a new way. The jealousy that's in my heart it, it will, he will want to repair it. I'll have to give up control. I'll have to actually face the pain that I'm carrying. I don't want to stop being angry because it's my way to pay people back for the hurt that they've caused. And if you're here and you haven't trusted Jesus to make you whole, 
What is holding you back? You see, what we see in the Gospels, what we understand from the story, what we hear from Jesus is what Jesus is supposed to do in a person, which is restore him to being a human being. And the reality is, is that we can't begin to truly face the brokenness in our own lives until we are under the grace of God. Listen, we cannot begin to turn and face the brokenness in our lives until we are under the grace of God. Think about this statement for you. What, what do I mean by this? I mean that what you do naturally when you see your own brokenness is, is you run from it. You hide it. You cover it. You medicate it. You justify it. And all of that just tells us that you don't like it. You're not okay with it. But Jesus is. He sees you and knows exactly who you are. He's the one that knows you the best, but also the one that loves you the most. And so when you trust Him, it means that you are agreeing with Him, that, that you agree with Him that you are worthy and you are lovable, even though, fill in the blank, it's agreeing with God that He loves you and He came to cover you with grace in order to make you whole. And it is in that grace that allows us actually to look at the repairs that need to be done and face the repairs that need to take place and get to work. It is His grace that removes the shame that we feel about our brokenness so that we can be free in Him to be restored. Do you know that a very, this is a really weird fact, but do you know that a very large percentage of people who win over seven figures in the lottery often end up broke five to seven years later. Think about that. Why? They thought their main issue was money. But now that they have it, they got to come to grips that money could never fix the deeper issue. But often we're just hyper-focused on just fixing our problems that we miss the fact that Jesus came to transform our character. So we need to be honest. Because the process of transformation in, the, in our character, it is a painful one. It is a costly process. The first and greatest cost was paid in the cross. But following Jesus on his path is going to cost you everything. You need to be vigilant to check your motives, to not slack off in excuses in your, well, it's just my personality, or to be resigned with, these are the cards that were dealt, with, dealt to me. Coming to Jesus and walking with Jesus, it does not fix things instantly. But he's the only one who can give you a proper diagnosis and the right solution. Someone once, someone once shared with me, that, you know, their life was story up until the point of where they, they met Jesus, which was one year prior to this conversation. And as I listened to her, I just thought, there's no way it could get worse. And then she would keep telling me, and I would go, I would have to say, it did. It just read like a tragedy. I said, I am so sorry. That must have been so painful. As she quickly butted in, well, it's all better now. I know Jesus. Jesus healed me. I thought, that's funny. That's the exact opposite experience I had and most people have when they meet, meet Jesus. 
Because when I met Jesus, I got a whole new set of problems. Problems that weren't problems became problems. Why? Because I could ignore my problems. I could ignore the sin in my life. But I met Jesus, I, you know, I didn't want to face them. But when I trusted Christ, he began to gently just walk through his inspection. And I'll just tell you, it was ugly. <laughs> if you've ever had a home inspection and they look at everything, like this is Jesus doing a, an inspection on my life. And like, I didn't, I didn't like what I saw. Neither did he. I didn't know how many repairs that were needed to make to make me whole, but he did. And he's good. And it was good. And he's at work. And I trusted him. And this is what it looks like to abide in Jesus for the rest of my life, to never run from his holiness, but to bask in it. Now I can tell you from 30 years of walking with Jesus, following him, honestly, most, most days wholeheartedly, I just tell you, it has changed me. It has cost me too, but I don't, I don't focus on what it's cost me because deep and genuine transformation is worth whatever it costs. Whatever it costs you. What is the cost for you today right now? In a moment, we're going to be welcome to the communion table. What do you want him to do what do you know he's doing that you need to be able to say, yes, Jesus, make me whole in that area? You can wholeheartedly bring your life to him. So we talked about what wholeness looks like. We talked about when it begins and how it continues, but we haven't yet talked about where it is all headed. You see, because hope for the Christian is not only for this life in this moment. Our lives are made whole so that we can continue to bring the kingdom of God to more and more spaces. And the first and most important space is the church. This is where we learn to be a new community, where we learn to sacrifice and to love each other and to forgive each other and to live as blood-bought people of God. This is the place where there ought to be unity in the midst of just great diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of jobs, diversity of ethnicity. It's a place where we are committed to not just tolerate one another, but to truly love each other. You see, the Lone Ranger Christian, the one who doesn't need organized anything, it's an oxymoron. God made you to flourish in society, and the picture the world needs to see is the tremendous self-sacrificial love of those who come together to worship Jesus. The church ought to be the place of just diverse political beliefs and backgrounds and life experience where we gather together under one name that unites us all. Where we together are pushing the boundaries of darkness and injustice to bring the light of Christ and the values of the true king in commerce, in government, in our family. Where we pray and we begin to execute God's will, your will. Let it be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because the story of Jesus is the story of God coming to transform everything, to bring renewal to all things that are tainted with sin. And the overflow of the heart of worship, it means that we love and do good because He first loved us. And the, the mighty foundation of this story and its hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. 
And this is not some new, you know, new plan that God had. This all things new. This is the thread of salvation that is woven throughout all 66 books of the Bible. And it is revealed to us in Scripture the full intent of what God is, where wholeness is truly bringing us one day. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Well, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he is saying here is this. Sin brings death to our bodies, but this is not the way that it's supposed to be. Sin is foreign to God's creation. This is not original to the design. If Jesus truly defeated sin, then prove it. And God did by restoring Jesus bodily in the resurrection. And that means that there is a resurrection happening for all of us. For the believer and the unbeliever. For the believer it will be to reign with God in, listen, listen, in a transformed physical body. Listen, on a transformed physical earth. God did not create the world to trash it. He intends the church to be His holy instrument by which we bring the love of Jesus into more and more spaces. And one day, God will do His final work of utterly transforming everything around us and releasing it from its decay. My pancreas will work one day. I'm excited about that, right? Carbs, right? This wholeness is called heaven. Heaven is not some place up there where we become less than human, where we have wings and become ethereal wisps floating around doing who knows what. The biblical notion of hope and shalom, this dwell, God dwelling with His people, is us getting dirt underneath our fingernails in this new creation, gardening and planting, and I'm going to have a stream where I can fly fish. I hope, I don't know. But this is the biblical vision of heaven. This is what we truly long for. This is the picture of eternity. God with his people forever. If you think sunsets are beautiful now and creation is beautiful now, can you just imagine? This is all just a shadow of what's to come. You see, some of you older folks like me, you remember TVs from our childhood, don't you? Right? They were square. And large ones were, wait for it, 25 inches. It's amazing. Holy moly, Andy. What a gigantic big box of a TV. I was like the remote in my family, right? Son, can you turn the channel? Click, 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 click. We had one of those TVs. And on those TVs, my Buffalo Bills lost four straight Super Bowls. On my square TV, which was 480p, you can re-watch the heartbreak if you want to today in 480p. 
And when you do, you will know you are watching football. It's not like you're going to go, what's that they all are doing out there? Is that, is that water polo? They'll say, no, that's a game of football. But it's just not crisp. It's a little blurry, and it's my childhood. But life changed. Life changed, right? HDTV. Holy cow, 720p. This is amazing. What? They did it again? 1080p? Can it get any better? Wait, it can. We've got ultra high definition 4K. We've doubled that too. You see what I'm driving at is that the earth and all of our lives will be completely made new. And right now we live in the shadowlands. We see dimly as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. God will completely change everything on earth. And you will experience life with Jesus the way it was always meant to be. Where is this all heading? Let me sum it up this way. A resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ reigning on a resurrected earth. I want to close today in this big picture story with some important thoughts for you. I believe that there is a, an urgent need to make the biblical narrative our narrative. If this narrative isn't the story that shapes your life, you are being shaped by a counterfeit story. Did you hear that? If this narrative isn't the narrative that shapes your life, you are being shaped by a counterfeit story. You see, we live in a society that presents a multiplicity of ways to live. Jesus calls people to himself, frees them from their sins so that they would live solely for him one way, the way, the truth, and the life. The goal of the life of a Christian is to live out Christ's life in us, a life that includes leaning into and living from the resurrection power that comes through faith in Jesus. And in order to live out following Jesus with our lives and choices, we need to be able to sift the culture from the true narrative. We need to be able to sift what the culture is telling us from the true narrative. We have to learn how to do this. Because the biblical vision of restoration, it lays the foundation for all of our transformation and our role. My job here to this morning is to help show you how to walk in newness of life. And we want to urge you to step into it. How? How do you do that? Well, you start by taking one step and you walk in a new direction. You begin to make this story the primary, listen, the primary way you think about, see, imagine, and experience life. This means that when you say or think, I'm feeling anxious, what, what does this tell me about myself and my desire maybe to control and my fears and how does this story reflect the story of being yielded to Jesus and his control in my life? Maybe you think, I can do this alone. I, I'm, I can just go on alone. I don't need y'all. But then we remember that the act of faith to put me in Christ, it's that same act that put me into the body in the church. 
And so the story in Scripture is about God forming this new society of which I am a part of. So you say, do I need to repent of just an individualistic identity? And, and you need to ask, why am I not more invested in the body of Christ? I can do life my way and follow Jesus. But in God's story, Jesus asked me to offer my life as a living sacrifice. If I'm not doing that, am I truly following him? Today, am I a more competent citizen of a country than I am a competent citizen of the gospel? You see, the goal of the life of a Christian is to live out Christ's life in us. And in a couple weeks, we're going to start to lean into this more and talk about how people truly change. And so right now, we have an opportunity to go into communion. And I've just been praying this week and this morning that whatever it is that you heard, that you would be honest and bring your heart and your thoughts and your mind and submit them to Jesus. Communion is an incredible opportunity for us to come and to be able to take the bread and know that Jesus' body was broken for me. He's the one who can only bring wholeness in my life and his blood was poured out for me, represented in the juice. He said this is a blood of a new and everlasting covenant. God will never forsake you. And it's a promise, and we do this awaiting his return when he comes to judge the living and the dead, of which I hope, I hope, I hope for all of you that you would be found righteous, not in your righteousness, but in his. Would you guys stand with me as we go into a time of worship, and I'm going to pray. The way that we do communion here is that if you, if, if there has been a point of time and surrender in your life, we invite you to come and Partake of the communion elements. But if you're here today and you are wrestling with God and you haven't yet ever come to that point of full surrender, there's no need to take the bread and say, I, I believe that your body was broken for me if you don't. And so we're just really glad you're here. And so this is an opportunity for you just to observe and be in this rest of the worship service with us. But if you know him, we invite you to come during one of these worship times. Um, and there will be people on the side. If you want any prayer, we would love to be able to pray for you, whatever you're carrying this week. And so why don't we pray and go into this time of worship. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you have come, Jesus, to bring wholeness and healing into my life, to give me a picture of what it looks like to stand in your fullness and your greatness as a whole person. God, make us whole. And my unending prayer is that everyone gathered here this morning, that they would be present when you come in the fullness of your kingdom to judge the living and the dead. Lord, I don't want anybody to be missing. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.